Cancer journey is unique for everyone. It is time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 19 of the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast. I'm Jen Cochran. My guest today is Dana Hudson. She's the founder of Cancer Champions, LLC, helping individuals and families gain clarity in the confusion of a cancer diagnosis. She compassionately consults, educates, and facilitates for individuals and their loved ones as they navigate a complicated healthcare system, empowering them to make life-altering decisions with confidence. Prior to founding Cancer Champions, Dana amassed a wealth of oncology expertise over a 25-year career within the biopharma industry. She combines her unique knowledge of the healthcare system with her compassion for people experiencing a disruptive diagnosis to provide private medical navigation and educational seminars. Dana is a Campaign Zero Families for Patient Safety Community Educator and immediate past president of the National Association of Women Business Owners, Greater DC. Today, I'm excited to have her share the value of engaging a private advocate, as well as her immense experience and some resources in this industry of a cancer diagnosis. Today, my guest is Dana Hudson, the founder of Cancer Champions, and I'm really excited to have you here today because I think what you do is so important for survivors and for patients who are surprised or shocked Mm -hmm. or frightened by a diagnosis. I think it's so important to know that there are people like you who step in in the role of advocate and can really help to guide and reduce the fear. I'm a big proponent of approaching our diagnoses from a place of power mm-hmm. and information and not being in that place of fear. So I'm really excited for you to share with the listeners today about how you got started on this journey and to tell them a little bit about what Cancer Champions does. Jen, thank you for having me. I'm humbled to be asked to be on your podcast. So thank you so much for the opportunity to educate more people and as to what a private health advocate does and specifically what Cancer Champions does. You had asked about how I entered into this profession and I will say, I'll go ahead and tell you my story. I wanted to be a physician, at least I thought I did. My grandfather was a doctor, my grandmother was a nurse and and, um, I thought that was the route I was gonna take. And then I went to college and I'm in my head thinking pre-med and I met up with organic chemistry. like many pre-med people do. And it weeded me right out of the pre-med program like it's supposed to. I just, I hate, I just couldn't do it. Found that I had a much higher aptitude for business. So I went into the business school and I ended up graduating with marketing degree, but I love, love, love medicine and science. And I didn't want to drift too far away. I took my business skill set and I pursued a career in, back then it was pharma, it was pharmaceuticals. There was no biotech, anything. It was pharmaceuticals. I'm kind of old. And I stayed in that scientific realm for my whole career. So I did all manner of jobs while I was in that 
doing. I did sales. I did thought leader development. I did marketing. I was did some reimbursement, did some patient advocacy work, and ended my career at Genentech, which is a big biotech company, working all in oncology, which is most everybody on this podcast knows it's just the study of cancer. Was happy, loved my job, met lots of people, had lots of great opportunities. And then my father was diagnosed with cancer three years ago. And so I saw firsthand what it's like to be the daughter of somebody with cancer and to be the caregiver. And it became very clear to me just how frustrating it is for people that don't have some healthcare literacy, know who to talk to, understand the disease. It's all of those things that you said, Jen, it's, it's scary. It's frustrating. It causes lots of confusion. There's so much confusion and you just can't make good choices when you're scared to death and confused. From that experience, I decided to quit my big biotech job and I started Cancer Champions two and a half years ago. Since then, this profession is developing. There now is a board certification to be a private health advocate. And I took that last spring and now I'm a board certified private health advocate, focusing primarily just in the cancer space, helping people just, like you said, who have had their lives disrupted by this diagnosis, help them gain clarity in the confusion through education and guidance and support so they can make decisions with a clear head and with confidence moving through their journey. That's how this all evolved. So, so important. I have found in talking with people and in talking with patients on my own journey, there's this idea, and I think generationally, do you see differences generationally with different segments of the population in terms of how they approach the healthcare system and how they approach the advice that they receive? I do. So my parents' generation, you know, which is my dad, they were very much, and especially growing up with a physician in the family, they were very much, you know, we're going to listen to what the white coats say. They know more than I do, you know, in this situation and they're the expert. And so we're just going to do what they say. Our generation, my generation, I'm older than you are. I feel there's a, a little more skepticism and a little more of a willingness. They're not afraid to sort of dig in and do their own research and, you know, do their own thing. The problem with that is what cancer does to people is it renders us all equally, for lack of a better word, equally ignorant. Like it doesn't matter how sophisticated you are. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have behind your name or what, you know, it doesn't matter. It renders almost everybody helpless unless you speak the language, understand what is going on, understand. And if you don't have somebody to help you do that, you can be on the internet researching all day long, but if you don't know what you don't know, you don't even know what you're looking at. So it's a, it's a very different disease in, in the sense that it does render almost everybody kind of helpless. Would you agree with that? I would. I was in a slightly different position, which gave me kind of a different view as I was going through my own journey and seeing other people going a similar journey at the same time. Mm -hmm. I had worked with breast cancer survivors specifically, cancer survivors on a whole, but a number of breast cancer survivors specifically. And I had done a thesis paper on working with breast cancer survivors. So I had researched all the surgeries and I had a good idea of the impacts to the body and the impacts of chemo and the impacts of different drugs and the need for 
understanding when you take prednisone that you're at risk for osteoporosis because a lot of times people know they're taking calcium, but they don't know why. Right, right. So I found myself educating my clients from a movement perspective, like on arm sleeves and the potential risks, even before I became a lymphedema therapist. So when I went through my breast cancer journey, the first thing I said to my surgeon was, she was getting ready to do the biopsy. And the first thing I said to my surgeon was, we're just going to take them off and I'm going to get an upgrade. And she laughed and was like, well, let's see what we're dealing with. And I had read my MRI and my MRI said 95% chance of malignancy and which shook me yeah. when I saw that, like I knew, right. when I picked up the paperwork, I knew. Right that was the way it was going. I knew I had three spots. I knew they were all small, but when I saw that 95%, I was like, Oh yeah. Oh, that's real now. But because I had that background, it was a much different place for me. It was very easy for me to say, before I had to make this decision, this is the decision I was comfortable with. So you're a perfect example, Jen, of what we do. So what I do is I take somebody from that just paralysis of hearing they have cancer to a place where they are in their room with their physicians speaking with confidence. They understand their disease. They understand their options. They understand the side effects because we go through the education process together because my goal is to make people empowered so they don't need me. My goal is to give people the tools and the education and what they need so they can go in and advocate for themselves with confidence. You were very confident that that was the right decision for you. And that's my goal with all my clients is to get them to that spot. Yeah. And I think that's so important because I find, and you probably have found this as well, if you have people that find you somewhat after the fact. Yes, that's a big problem. Where they've made decisions and then there were a lot of people that I met in my journey that had a lumpectomy Mm -hmm. and then were like, oh, well, I did that because it was the quickest. Mm -hmm. We don't get a lot of guidance from the breast surgeons. They, They give you your options. But in the majority of cases, I don't think that they, unless you have a situation like my left side had to come off. Mm -hmm. I had three small spots. I was barely a B. I wasn't going to be left with much. Mm -hmm. And then I was very clear that I was just going to do both. Mm -hmm. And my plastic surgeon was very supportive of that. I had great options. And because I was so certain, Mm -hmm. she was very comfortable Mm -hmm. in saying to me, in all honesty, mm-hmm. that's the recommendation I would make. 95% of my patients come back within five years to do the other side. Right. Do it electively because right. well, I guess of the stress it. or, mm-hmm. but that's not, if you go in and you're unclear right. and you don't ask the probing questions right. and you don't continue to ask <laughs> in different ways until you get an actual answer. Or an answer that you understand. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I, I saw that over and over with people and I think it's really challenging and I've participated in a number of studies where doctors are investigating what are the parameters around which people make choices mm-hmm. for breast cancer. 
the questions are all based on risk factor, aesthetics come up. Doctor recommendation is another one of the things that they're kind of probing. Mm-hmm. They're trying to determine mm-hmm. how much input should be given, you know, what's influencing the decision versus what's valuable input. And I think that's a real struggle. It's a balance for sure. Yeah. And I think for medical professionals, there's struggle there. Well, and now big data is coming into play. Now there's companies out there that have big data platforms with algorithms basically that are designed to help somebody make a decision on a treatment decision. That's the same. Where is that data coming from? I mean, garbage in, garbage out. Is it taking everything into consideration? Is it, you know, cancer is such a specific individual disease because it works at the genetic level and we all have different DNA for the most part. It's hard. There's a lot out there for patients to consider. That's why I feel like it's so important that they have somebody. I've, I've had a client call me like a Sherpa. She was like, you know, I, I wouldn't go climb Mount Everest without a Sherpa. So why, you know, I'm facing this daunting task. Why would I do it without somebody to help me? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, I don't know what all this stuff means. I don't know. And, and sometimes when you don't know what you don't know, it's the blind spots that get you. Absolutely. It's the treatment that you said yes to that now is precluding you from getting a clinical trial that really has something new and novel and innovative that really might actually be very good. It's that kind of thing. And that can come back to haunt you. Right. And it's all the things that we're not talking about. We'll talk about cost. Let's Oh, something. yes. Cost, actually. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely something that I want to circle back on because that's super important and there's so many ins and outs of insurance. So I definitely want to circle back on that. I think too, like you were saying, the treatments that we take, there's certain treatments in certain types of cancer that they've been doing forever. There's an attachment to doing that treatment, even if you're having horrible side effects. Right. And then we struggle to say, you know what? I can't, I can't sustain this. And then there's other things that impact us in terms of that as well. And sometimes when you dig down into the statistics, you come to find out, well, yeah, the number of recurrences that happened here and the number of recurrences that happened in the placebo group, there is a a significant difference between the two, but the totals weren't very high. And in my case, I found myself saying, okay, of these people in this study, how many of them looked like me? Right, right. How many of them were hormone and HER2 positive? How many of them were in their mid-40s? How many of them had good diet, good fitness levels? And how many of them were 80? Right, right. (laughs) Right. No, it's, that's, that's a, such a big point too, is knowing how to read the clinical literature. Like it just, and if you don't know how to read the clinical literature, you can, and if you don't know how to decipher um, relevant, valid clinical literature, I mean, the internet is full of all kinds of information and not all of it is, is relevant or valid. And, but again, if you don't know what you don't know, sometimes you can waste a lot of time going down a rabbit hole that doesn't even have anything to do with you and your case. It takes a trained eye and somebody that does, that's been trained on how to read the medical literature to, to help you figure it all out. Absolutely. One of the things we've talked about before is this whole idea of, and I don't know what the right percentage is with this, but 
in a majority of cases, when you get this diagnosis, yes, you have to take action, but you don't necessarily have to take action that day. There's time to do the research. There's time to engage someone like you to make sure that the actions you take are the right actions. The specific example that you had given me previously was someone with pancreatic cancer and how you choose a surgeon. Yeah, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, like you just don't wanna go to anybody GYN. You don't wanna do that. You have one chance at having a really good surgery. You wanna make sure you go to an oncologic gynecologist so they can, they know where the cancer hides. They know where to go get it. I'm so glad you brought that up about time because that is one of the things I tell my clients all the time. It's so scary to get that diagnosis. I mean, Jen, you know, right? So I haven't had the diagnosis myself, but I've been with plenty of people that have. And it's frightening. You immediately, I want this out of my body. Like I need this out of my body right now. And that is a real fear, but there are modalities and there are things, mindfulness techniques and things that that we can hook people up with resources that they can have to try to minimize some of that anxiety so they can take a step back and say, okay, is is this the best doctor for me? Is this the best institution for me? Based on a lot of things, not, and it's not necessarily all who's got the greatest clinical background. Sometimes people want to be treated in a certain environment. So you take all of those things into consideration. But my point is you don't have to go to the medical oncologist that the surgeon referred you to. If you go and you don't click with that person or you don't like the office or you don't like the staff or there's something that you just don't like, you can take a step back and do your research and be a smart healthcare consumer. People spend more time researching a car than they do their healthcare providers. And again, it gets back into that. They must be smarter than me. I'm not a doctor they're the expert. I'm just going to do what they say. But I'm here to tell you, you are the consumer. You can take time. You want to make an educated decision. You don't want to make a, a, a just fly by night decision. There are instances where in some acute leukemias where you don't have a lot of time, but those institutions are also much easier to find where the best ones are because not everybody does acute leukemia. Right. So I definitely want to talk more about the navigating the insurance and healthcare professionals. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk more about that. Stay with us. Enjoying the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast? Come on over to the Facebook group where you can join the community and participate in the conversation during the week. I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. Hi, I'm here with Dana. We are back talking about cancer champions and the benefits of having an advocate. Dana, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the benefits of having a private advocate versus an institutional advocate or a nurse navigator. I know that the medical community is starting to go more toward that nurse navigator kind of third party to your medical team. So talk a little bit about the benefits of having an independent advocate. Great question, Jen. So just to provide a little context around how this all even came about, positions of a nurse navigator or a case manager or an oncology you know, nurse, whatever they want to call it, they, they have a variety of names, advocates, navigators. It came about because the healthcare system has become so complex and disjointed and everybody's working in silos and it was born out of necessity to just help people get through 
a healthcare system. I mean, we all are familiar with these big healthcare systems. For us here in the Northern Virginia area, ANOVA is the, the big one. The institutional navigators are paid by the institutions. So they work for ANOVA. There are some advocates and navigators sometimes that you'll find in an advocacy, like in a nonprofit in an advocacy organization that can also help you. They primarily are very specialized in just their particular cancer type, whatever it is. So they're a good resource. What makes a private advocate different is I work for the client. I work for the patient and the family, which gives me the freedom to have a broader perspective of what's happening and to give people a clearer picture of what is going on, not just within the health system that they're operating in, but across the country. And so that's the benefit that you get with a private advocate. And with me specifically is you get the benefit of all of my insights of 30 years being in oncology, in the medical field, in these hospitals, in this system. I have lots of insight through a lot of different systems. That's the primary difference. It's not an adversarial position for a private advocate and an institutional advocate. We work a lot of times together. I might, once I get a client in a system that they're comfortable with and they're happy with, and I will make sure that they know who the navigator is help them within the system. It's a broader perspective that you get and the loyalty of making sure that I'm looking out for you, not for an insurance company and not for a big health system. Right. Or for doctors in particular, I think that's another area of challenge for patients because in a lot of cases, like in my case, I had a surgeon and a plastic surgeon, an oncologist. I have a friend that's been going through a recent diagnosis and they had a surgeon, cardiothoracic and a reconstruction doctor. So there's many components to the team. You had touched on this earlier in regard to generationally our different approaches to healthcare. I've seen that play out in my own life with friends where two doctors were in network, one doctor was out of network, and there was no investigation done. There was that wasn't even questioned. Right. So what happens, Jen, and you know this because you've been through the system, but for the sake of people that might be listening, an institutional navigator is not ever, for the most part, going to navigate you outside of the system. Because if they do, that's revenue that's just walking out the door. Margins are really tight for for physicians now and for health systems. They are not directed to send you anywhere else. With cancer, sometimes you may get a referral within the system and that that might be the right person for you. That might be the, the just right professional for you. But the point that I really want to make today is you don't have to stay with that particular professional. And if you have a, some type of cancer that is more specialized or you just don't like the office, you can travel out and and get just the perfect person for you. And the perfect person is somebody that's got the expertise, that has done lots of cases like yours, that knows the literature, that knows the research, that knows the other specialists so they can bounce ideas off of each other. That's the person that you want. You don't want somebody that, oh yeah, I've done ovarian cancer once or twice. That's not what you want. And for me, the beauty of navigating, and I'm not, I'm not adversarial, so I want to try to keep somebody within their health system because then insurance and everything gets kind of sticky. But if somebody 
has a very specialized cancer and they can't get the expertise there locally. And I am happy to make arrangements to help them to get to one of the big centers of excellence for a second opinion. And there's all a myriad of ways you can do that now. There's telemedicine, they've got grand rounds where your case may be able to just be put up in front of a tumor board and it wouldn't cost you anything. You don't have to travel to Houston to get the brains at MD Anderson to look at your case. But it takes a navigator, it takes a private advocate to be able to know the nuances of how to make that happen. It doesn't just happen organically. You have to know what questions to ask, you have to know what to look at, who trained with who, what connections can I pull in to make this happen. Worst case scenario, you leave the system and you go to MD Anderson, but it's out of pocket. You pay for it. You realize you're going to pay for it, but you get the peace of mind of knowing that what the hometown guy was going to do is exactly what Anderson was going to do. And you can come back and just be treated at your hometown with confidence that you're getting state-of-the-art therapy. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think one of the key things that I try to stress to people as well, and this can often be challenging is to check in with your level of comfort. You've probably seen this with people that you're advocating for. I've seen people, they just can't make a decision. In almost every case where the decision just couldn't be made, it's like, get a second opinion. You need a different doctor. The team isn't the right team. There might be components of the team that are right, but something's not right. If everything was right, you would be able to make this decision. You would have peace. Yeah. Yes. And, and that's, that's part of it. I mean, you might have every component within one, like you're saying, that you're comfortable with, the surgeon, the medical oncologist, but maybe there's, you know, maybe there's not a plastic person that you like. And we have to go find a plastic person that you like and that you have confidence with because that's a huge part of a huge part of the, the big picture. The other thing, and I'm glad you mentioned decision making, sometimes even after people get their second opinion, right? And now they've got two different differing opinions. Okay. Yeah. One of the things that I'm trained in and a lot of the advocates are trained in is um group decision making and how to have a seat at the table and how to have your voice be heard. And then I also know how to help you facilitate through decision making exercises so you can come to your own decision, not with just emotion, but with facts. That's another way that that an advocate can help. So important because it's an emotionally charged time. I think one of the only times that I really truly was super emotional was when I was booked at the wrong hospital. That would would rock you a little bit. It was a week out from my surgery that I had waited five weeks for. It was going to be six weeks from the time I got my biopsy result to the time of my surgery, which felt like an eternity. Eternity. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of waiting in cancer that's horrible. Yeah. And I was really grounded. This waiting, like this six week waiting was not, it was the one thing I was just not feeling great about. And in all honesty, the difference between my MRI and my surgery was the difference between stage one and stage two B. Wow. Now, whether that happened in six weeks or whether they just couldn't fully see or didn't get the largest measurement or whatever the case may be. It's hard to say. But I remember having that call with the hospital and having the hospital go through the entire intake. Pre-op. At the end, she says, oh, by the way, just wanted to let you know, we're not in your network, but we're happy to host your surgery. It will just be out of network. So you'll be paying at the out of network rate. (laughs) 
This was after 40 minutes on the phone. I was like, no, no, yeah. I'm not okay with that. Yeah. No, I did not agree to this. Right. What are you talking about? Right. And I called my plastic surgeon and I called my surgeon and I happened to get my plastic surgeon's assistant on the phone. And she was like, oh, good Lord, we'll take care of that right away. Like that shouldn't have happened. Someone, someone dropped the ball somewhere. And within the hour, they had me rescheduled on the same day in Loudoun. Right. At the correct hospital. At the correct hospital that was in network. Yep. But if I hadn't said, no, that's unacceptable. Well, and would just say, okay, because they don't know that they can say no. Right. This is this is problem. Yeah, Jen, this is my whole thing. This if it could just boil down to one little thing. Like when I said, remember, it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, it doesn't remember your educational status, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, how tech savvy you are, it doesn't matter. If you don't know what you don't know, you are going to be blindsided by something. By something. And you, um, just on this podcast, have given us a myriad of examples of how things can go sideways. And if you weren't you and already had educated yourself due to, you know, your job and, and what you do, you very well may have fallen into some of these traps. Absolutely. I was having a conversation with my insurance provider this week because I have a low level of lymphedema, but I do have lymphedema in my affected arm. I have a very physical job. Yeah. And I'm a physical person. I'm a runner. Yeah. I need compression garments that work. Yeah. You have to replace them every six months. Last year, I tried to go through insurance. They gave me five medical device companies. One of the five can provide arm sleeves. One. I placed an order at the beginning of June because my plan ends July 1st. I placed an order at the beginning of June. They don't stock them. They have to, they place the order, they call Mm -hmm. the manufacturer, they ship them over, they send it to me. Mm -hmm. So they canceled my order because it was too close to my my plan date. And they decided that that was a financial risk for them. And they told the insurance company they needed pre-authorization because I called my insurance company and was like, I'm done with them. You, by law, have to give me options. You're giving me no options. It took me five months to get this fulfilled from them the first time, and I'm not dealing with them anymore. So you need to do a better job because if I don't manage this condition, it will cost you more money. Right. And it will permanently debilitate me. Right. So fix it. Right. And I was on the phone with them for two hours. But it was two hours well spent for somebody else too, not just for yourself, but you've paved the way now for some other woman who maybe would not even know that she had the option to say no. We need well, to solve this with somebody else. This source is not working. And I said to the insurance company, I was like, look, people are not compliant when it comes to wearing their garments. Right. And one of the reasons they're not compliant is because it's so freaking hard. Yeah. Yeah. And it shouldn't be this hard. Like lymphedema shouldn't be a mystery. Right. Right. People should be educated about it. Sleeves should be readily available. If your PT can diagnose you, they should be able to sell you sleeves at an agreed upon rate. Yep. Yep. It just shouldn't be this hard. Yeah. So I ended up having to file for a gap exception. 
which I didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. But after two hours, they finally were like, oh, we've called every provider within a 30 mile radius of your house and all of our national providers and no one can provide that for you. So you'll need to file a gap exception, find someone that, I was like, I can literally walk three miles from my house and purchase them. That, mm. But I can't purchase them for $44. Yes. I have to purchase them for $87. Right. And I shouldn't have to do that. No. You should do your job. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, don't be sorry. Sorry for just so many people out there. I'm just, I mean, it's just, it's why I do what I do. It just, it makes me crazy. It's so important mm -hmm. because, and you've said this several times, we don't know what we don't know. I mean, as much information as I had, like I'd never heard of a gap exception. I was like, what is a gap exception? My friend who had the specialist surgeon, I said to her, okay, there has to be someone in network. She's like, well, we have a deductible. I said, yeah, but you have two deductibles. An in-network deductible and an out-of-network deductible. I don't know what your out-of-network deductible looks like, but mine was 20 grand. Yeah, they, they make them big for a reason. Yeah, and the idea that you have a savings account. I was like, no, right. These situations should not bankrupt us. Right. Right. But unfortunately, 43% of Americans right now, or no, not 43%, 43 million Americans are walking around with medical debt hanging over their head. It's a real thing. And it's not just for cancer. So much of it in cancer, because we have so much innovation and, and things are still very expensive with yes. all the innovation, even in like rheumatoid arthritis and some of the chronic immune diseases and anywhere there's innovation, anywhere you've got some innovation, wicked expensive. People need these things to stay alive. Many, many years ago, I'd had a car accident and it, I was brought in through the emergency room. And so when I got my bill, it was $14,000. When insurance got a hold of the bill... It was $2,000. Yeah. So having gone through that experience many, many years ago, when I had my diagnosis, I started a spreadsheet mm -hmm. and I started tracking mm -hmm. because I'm very passionate that we all need insurance. I don't care how old you are. In the case of my knee injury, it was a car accident. My health insurance was the primary payer. I was at fault through a strange series of events. My health insurance was the primary payer for that incident. So I started keeping track. When my husband and I got married, I switched over to his insurance. Her Septin, under my affordable health care plan, cost $7,000 a treatment. Now, that was a life-saving, and as a life-saving for her two positive patients, I got it every three weeks for a year. So you can do that math. It's seven grand a pop. Mm -hmm. Under... My new insurance after I got married, it was like $4,200 a treatment. The treatment was the same. It's just the negotiated price was different. There was no negotiated price mm. under my previous plan. Now I had met my deductible. I had chosen specifically, I had chosen a, a not super high deductible. I had chosen a copay plan versus a coinsurance plan. Like I was very specific in how I controlled my costs right. so to speak, sure. and I chose my plan not expecting to have a yeah, catastrophic nice. diagnosis but with an eye to well I did have a car accident right right that could happen right anytime it's an interesting procedure and the amount of 
work that goes into managing your medical and making sure everything gets paid and making sure that, you know, when you hit your deductible, sometimes it takes a while for everything to catch up. So you're getting bills that you don't necessarily have to pay because you've hit your deductible, but they haven't all gotten submitted. And it's a whole management thing that I think we just aren't even necessarily aware needs that kind of care and feeding. It's one of the things that I advise my clients that, you know, you always have people that come out of the woodwork that want to help you, right? There's, there's people in your family, friends, people want to help you. And I mean, I, I kind of have kidding, but I don't really mean it because I know people mean well, but there are only so many casseroles you can eat. So uh, that is a fact. So I tell my, my clients make a very specific list of what practical things that you truly need. And one of them is put somebody on billing. Put somebody that is in charge, somebody that's good with, that's organizationally good, they're, they're, you know, you trust them and put them on all of your billing and, and they are the ones that are going to work out with all the, the billing and the, all the insurance and all of that. You don't need to worry. I mean, you do need to worry about it, but if you've got somebody in your circle that has some competency in that area, let them do it. Let them help you. And another thing is there are private advocates that do nothing but insurance and billing. So there's people like me that do nothing but insurance and billing and fight with insurance companies and go and to bat for medical, you know, overpayments and things in the hospitals that get billed three and four and five times. And so there are private advocates that do that as well. That's amazing. I love that idea of giving someone that task mm-hmm. of tracking the billing. I had my car accident, there was $2,000 in charges. It was a single line item and insurance came back and said, I I don't know what this is. I can't write it off because no one can tell me what it is. So you might be responsible for it. To which I called the hospital and I was like, what is this? this? Mm -hmm. And no one could tell me. And a lot of times they'll write that off. Well, what happened I wrote a letter and said, this line item cannot be assessed by my insurance company until such times my insurance company can assess the necessity of this line item. I will not pay it. Right. So until you can define what this money was for, I am not paying it. This is your notice. I'm not paying. And they ultimately sold that debt because they sell debt. They'll sell it for pennies on the dollar. Have you heard of RIP medical debt? So to your point, but I just talked about that this this morning. If you go on RIP, rest in peace, medical debt, it's a nonprofit. These are some bankers that they go and they buy this debt that's been sold to a debt broker so many times that now it's like pennies on the dollar. You donate to RIP medical debt. So people out in the general population will donate and then they go and just buy books of debt and send people letters in the mail. It comes in a gold envelope that says your debt's been forgiven. They just write it off for people. Wow, that's amazing. For me, just such a sweet example of how the ingenuity of the American public, right? To just see this huge problem. We've got 43 million people just drowning in medical debt and they've come up with a way to fix it. You can't do it one-on-one. They can't do it person to person yet, but you can put your name on a registry 
And if you happen to fall in a pot of something that, that they're forgiving, they'll look for you. There was a group of nurses somewhere rural, and they were so struck by just the debt that their patients were carrying and what a burden it was for their patients that they themselves came up with a, a, a campaign to raise money and specifically said, we want it to the debt to be in our geographic area. They can do that. Oh, wow. You raise money in an area, they can do that. So like $1,500 gets rid of $1.5 million worth of debt. Wow. That's amazing. RIP medical debt. They are my favorite. I love them. That's amazing. Yeah. That one letter that I had written to the hospital, I must've sent that to six creditors over the years because- it got sold. Then I'd get a letter from an attorney and I just fax them the letter and then I would never hear from them again. And then they would sell the debt and I'd get a letter from another attorney and I'd fax them the letter and it, it never hit my credit. It never showed up anywhere. Even if it does, I don't, you can't tell me what it is. I'm not paying it, but that's amazing. Uh, RIP medical debt. That Mm -hmm. is That is fantastic. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. It is always, I learn a tremendous amount when we chat. So thank you. Thank you for the time. And thank you for everybody listening. This is a great community that you've built, Jen. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dana, for all your valuable insights and information. One of the most important lessons I've learned in my cancer diagnosis, treatment, and post-treatment experience is that advocating for yourself or having the people in place to fiercely support and advocate for you are nearly as important as having the right medical team. As I talk with more and more survivors, I often find survivors and caregivers alike are not continuing with that advocacy. So my challenge for you this week is to advocate for yourself in an area you may be shying away from. Maybe you're great at telling your family what you need, but hesitate to advocate for your needs at work. Or maybe you're falling back into old habits of putting everyone else's needs first. Whatever it is for you, ask for the one thing you need to improve your week. Then come on over to the Cancer Cliff Notes Facebook group and share with the group. Let me know how it felt to get that need met. Thanks for listening and have a great week. (laughs) 